Welcome to Game Changers by Logitech G, the six-part podcast for the ones taking the risks, breaking the mould and changing the game. I'll be talking to a variety of people in the gaming world about different topics from diversity in gaming to its effect on mental health. I'm your host, Alan Boyston. Despite historical barriers of entry for disabled gamers, the video games industry is beginning to realise the importance of making games more accessible to gamers of all abilities. But not all developers and gamers are on board yet, and there's still a long way to go. So, how can we ensure that every gamer is able to enjoy gaming in their own way? And what steps can we make to combat ableism in the gaming industry? Today, I'm joined by accessibility consultant Ian Hamilton and Andrew Bromelow, accessibility assessor at national disabled gaming charity Everyone Can. So, Ian, Andrew, welcome to the show today. Uh, it would be good to really educate people. I guess we want to learn a bit about the barriers for disabled people, but also for yourself and the charity and the challenges you come up against as well. Uh, Andrew, I guess, firstly, a bit about your role. Tell us a bit about what you do. Okay. Uh, well, as an assessor for the charity, I can be sent all around the country to meet people, um, and we basically pair them with the adaptations or the technology that they need to be able to do whatever it is they want to do. We can help people with communication, environmental controls, but over the past few years, the charity's moved more and more into the gaming space. And we use gaming to help people learn how to use adaptions. So that could be someone that wants to use a computer to enable them to communicate with other people. We'll use simple games to help train that process. And then we'll also use gaming as a way to encourage social interaction, uh, just an enjoyable hobby and just agency uh, in, the, in people's lives. Mm. Ian, your role, uh, how does that differ? Um, well, my work is kind of split into, split into two chunks. Um, part of my time is spent on advocacy. So basically trying to raise awareness about accessibility and why it's important um, with both gamers and with developers. So that covers things like working um, like, on best practice guidelines on teaching, speaking, writing, um, running events as well. So you run a couple of accessibility conferences for developers. And the other side of it is the consulting side. So that's working directly with um, studios, big studios, small studios, um, platforms, industry bodies, and basically helping them um, remove barriers that can exclude people with disabilities from their products. Okay, so let's start with, I guess, the first barrier is peripherals themselves. Uh, charities help a lot with terms of making peripherals, options like that. Uh, Andrew, I'll start with yourself. Tell us about some of your initial work, of how you're helping people with disabilities. Uh, well, normally the first thing that we would do is they have to be aware that the equipment is available. Hmm. Uh, that's the first barrier. Um, but once people are aware, it's then a case of not rushing out and buying the equipment, but hopefully coming to a place like ourselves where we can help pair them with the right equipment and show them what's available let them get hands on with it try it before making any purchases um, the technology that's available nowadays uh, in terms of adaptations is much better and a lot cheaper than what it was just a few years ago uh, logitech's helped with that immensely uh, with the um, the release of their own switch package um, which is really great in terms of cost. Um, as an average, each individual switch that we would pair someone with to play a game, so every button they would need, used to cost, uh, for us, 30 pounds, a switch. Logitech have released a switch kit that with 12 switches included for 90 pounds, which 
as soon as you go over three switches, that's a huge saving. Uh, on top of that, when you go on the Logitech website, it's right there, first and foremost, at the top. They're proud of it. It's included. It's in their brand. Um, in terms of other equipment, there's the Xbox Adaptive Controller. That is massively cheaper than what was available beforehand. Before that, we were using the Adroit Switchblade 2. That was just over £300 plus shipping from America. Now you can get a pretty robust gaming setup that most disabled gamers would be able to use. And when we do an assessment, we can give them their wish list, find out what games they want to play, sit down with them, let them have a go, let them try a few different games and a few different setups, and then let them leave with a shopping list that budgeting probably about 150 to 200 pounds. Uh, massively more achievable or more affordable than what it was just two years ago. I mean, I, I guess the first part is letting people with disabilities know that they can do it. Yes. You know, it's like the, I, I suppose many come to you and think, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never be able to play that game. And of course, you can show them things uh, and op options that they didn't know existed. Uh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we are familiar with is that families or care groups will come with a game with disabilities and they're normally quite dismissive or quite surprised about what that individual will be able to achieve. And so normally they leave really just shocked and kind of awakened to the possibilities that that person can have in terms of gaming. Yeah, so I guess, Ian, to yourself, I mean, it adds a lot of freedom. You're, you've you've in, you've increased the range of controls available. You've increased the 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 um, I guess the way you communicate that across to people now. Uh, but you need games that are also have the option with the controller options to to work with as well. What kind of projects are you working on supporting that? In in general terms, it's um, the the two are intertwined. You can't really decouple like hardware accessibility and game accessibility because if somebody has um, limited reach, limited strength, limited endurance, precision, then that's going to come up against barriers that game designers have put in place into their games as well. So, so actually, there's this, this can sometimes be a misconception amongst developers that this, this provision of better technology and cheaper technology actually reduces the amount of work that's needed on the game side. But it actually increases it because it means that there's ever more and more people who are actually able to progress past those hardware barriers and need to encounter the barriers within games themselves. Mm. Um, so the, like I said, the two are inextricably linked. Online gaming as well, obviously it brings everybody together. It's a leveler. I mean, that must generate, it gives people a lot of freedom as well. It, it really helps if you can get them to that point playing online. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gaming is great, uh, but the charity's focus on it is gaming with other people as part of the community not in isolation or on on your own uh, we have no interest in setting someone up so they can be isolated and alone in their room um, online gaming is a great way to get someone who isn't able to get out there to meet new people to be experiencing to socialize so we've got several barriers then we've got obviously people with disabilities coming to you uh, you then help them You've then you're then helping produce controllers for them that can uh, work with them to help them play some of the games. What are the big hurdles to success uh, in growing this, Ian, in terms of challenges with the business, working with the industry, limitations you guys are coming to? 
what you know do we need the governing body to get more involved what, what are the challenges here well for for a long time um the big barrier was just a lack of awareness so developers not uh, even aware that accessibility is a thing not aware of the concept that any disabled people would or could play a game um, we're kind of past that point now. It's, it's um, hard to find a developer who hasn't at least heard about accessibility. So now it's more a case of um, busting misconceptions. So you often come up against the same kind of set of misconceptions, people thinking that accessibility is going to be really difficult, that it's going to be really expensive, that it's going to mean watering, watering down your ideas to suit a lowest common denominator, that it hardly benefits any people. All these things are completely demonstrably false. So accessibility can be really quick and easy if you think about it early enough in development. Most of the time, it's just adding some extra flexibility or adding some extra modes of communicating information that just makes your game better for everybody. Um, and the numbers are huge. Um, the the um, official government government prevalence data is about um, 15 to 20% of the population have some kind of a disability. Um, that's only people who identify um, as being disabled as well. So once you take into account... Um, uh, particularly um, older people or people who've um, acquired some kind of condition who don't actually identify as disabled or conditions like um, colour blindness or dyslexia where you wouldn't think of yourself as disabled but you do encounter barriers in games. Um, Microsoft actually did some research a few years ago to um, identify those additional people who don't identify as disabled. They basically ran through a list of day-to-day -day tasks like reading a newspaper, walking upstairs, um, asked, I think, 15,000 working age adults in America if they had difficulty with any of those tasks, and if so, why? And the figure they came to is actually more like 60% of the population um, had some kind of difficulty with those tasks, which is the definition of what disability is. So it's big, big numbers. And also through catering um, for designing for um, the avoidance of barriers to people who've got those permanent physical impairments, um, you're also designing for a whole host of other things as well. So for example, if you are designing a game to be accessible to someone who has only got one hand. Um, you're also designing for temporary impairments, like someone who's got a broken arm. You're designing for situational impairments, like holding a baby or holding a beer, or even just people with different preferences. Someone just might not feel like playing the complicated controls that, game, that day. Um, and you see that in the usage data as well. So you see, for example, um, the one-handed options that were put into Uncharted 4. Um, something like just under 1% of the population has one hand, but those options were used by a third of their players, millions of their players. Um, similarly, um, Assassin's Creed, they um, had subtitles turned off by default in Assassin's Creed Origins. They track usage data, and just over 60% of their players were choosing to turn subtitles on. So off the back of that, they made them one by default in the next game. Um, in that game, um, over 90% of the players um, left them turned on. So so this kind of stuff really, really does benefit um, just game design in general. So that's the kind of thing that we need to communicate to developers, um, showing people ways that stuff that can be done um, really effectively but cost effectively at the same time through thinking about things early and thinking about things strategically. And also breaking down those other misconceptions about the numbers of people that benefits, things like that as well. I think it's you know it's interesting. I I think that the one-handed, you know, the third of third of players, or you know, it's these stats are surprisingly high. It makes me wonder why people are are using a, a one-handed mode when they don't need to. That's quite interesting. How it's it's just something to play a game that way. That has been around for some time. Mm. Uh, I suppose what what you've highlighted there is that it's adaptability, isn't it? I I've talked to before about a steering wheel. I was designing one a few years ago and. Uh, 
you want it to be have the ability of working for people with disabilities, but also work as a standard wheel in itself. And it, I think if a product can be used for two different reasons without major changes, and that SDK can be given to game developers and they can include it in the games, suddenly it's not as big a deal. Uh, you've got some good data there in terms of, you know, uh, people without disabilities using these options. We there's a lot more that needs to be done. What what would you say? Change yourself from Andrew. What would you say right now? Would you like to see included? Urgently needs to be done to improve things. Um, I think first and foremost, um, accessibility options should be brought forward in game menus. Uh, quite often, people have to sit through very long cutscenes or things like that that they can't interact with before they'll even get to the game's menu. Being able to engage those features from the moment the game is launched, um, not having to dig through hard to read menus in order to find the options to make the menus readable would help. Mm. Um, uh, certain developers are being great nowadays and actually including what how accessible their game has been rated in the reviews. Um, I think more studios should be turning up to events. I I can. I can big up Ian here because like he's the one that runs it. It would be kind of embarrassing for you you to do it about yourself. But more developers turning up to events like what Ian runs with the GA conference and going to develop and attending the talks on accessibility, running more empathy labs and things like that. Hmm. Just engaging in that community. And they're really starting to. And it's an amazing environment and feeling to be a part of that nowadays. It's a real turning point at the moment. The past couple of years in particular has seen huge swathes of, well, huge swathes of developers kind of at the, the, the top ends of the budget, the big AAA games. Um, historically, um, the small indie developers have done loads and loads of really cool um, accessibility stuff because if you're in a company of two people, that's only one other person you got to persuade if you want to do some nice stuff. Um, but the big companies have been really getting on board the past couple of years. And they've generally been starting to implement the first couple of features quite late in development when the game launches and i always see the same thing from them damn it if only i thought about this from the start i could have done so much more and that's what they're now doing so um so kind of the next wave i think probably starting about the middle of this year we're going to start to see like that second wave of games coming through from those big companies so we should see some really really nice progress it's an exciting time we're moving to a new generation of hardware playstation 5 xbox series x future uh, some of what you're saying to me kind of sounds like it should be in a hardware setting, really, that there should be an accessibility setting in the hardware that uh, says, I, you know, I would like games to be structured in this way, and that way all games are structured in a certain way. There is some ways of doing that and certain features that enable it, um, but it's not always the best way of doing it. For example, you can set the controls on your Xbox controller um, through the console itself. Um, if you have an elite or an adaptive controller, you can actually set the button placement on that itself on the hardware. But without being able to calibrate and bind the buttons in-game as well, you'll find yourself like having to burn through different profiles, changing it regularly, leaving the game in order to launch it. And it's just a lot more complicated. It would be better if... Um, it was built into each game that you could do that. That said, though, a great feature would be on your console being able to set, I want large subtitles. And then every game that you play, 
pulls from the console, your profile data says, right, set the subtitles in this game immediately to on and set them to the larger size and then go from there. And then you can do the fine tuning in game. Yeah. Ian, what they need is an accessibility consultant. They need you basically to tell them how to do it. It seems to me that a lot of games companies could do with a bit of uh, accessibility consultancy uh, early on. I mean, right now we talked about indie games, didn't we? Because it's easy, like you said, a couple of guides making a game, they can include features. And even they say to you, oh, I wish I'd included that. Big games companies, Ian, what are they doing? The big games companies, it's a bigger challenge there, isn't it? Because it's a big machine. If, if it's a smaller company, the challenge is, uh, is always about um, time and money. Um, the big companies, um, they're working to timelines of a few years with teams of hundreds of people. So the resources are all there. It's a question of prioritizing. And people who have an interest internally being able to sway, persuade all the various different ranks of management that this accessibility consideration is something that deserves to be on the backlog, prioritized against all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other features, all of which are somebody's baby, you know? So it's, it's kind of a different kind of challenge. It's more, it's more kind of like a strategic and, and, and like political kind of challenge. Um, and that's, that's really been changing a lot and it's been helped by, um, some legislation in the USA um, called CVAA, um, which is about communications accessibility. So basically requiring um, digital communications like text chat and voice chat, like WhatsApp and Skype and that kind of stuff to be accessible. Um, that affects communication in games. So although it doesn't affect gameplay, what it has meant is that the um, like senior levels of management in all these big game companies have been talking about accessibility. So now when somebody says, oh, I want to do this cool accessibility thing, it's already part of the conversation that's made it a lot easier for people to do some cool stuff. So we need to get, we're making progress there. We need to get these big companies involved. Next thing I'll ask you is, do we need more in the way of business tax benefits, some kind of business benefits? I always find big industry, it, it, it takes a while to change, to to pick up certain areas and improve you know there are things that if you don't give to charity you don't appear on the rich list for example we know these things exist i i, I feel is there something in terms of impetus that you feel could help big companies and big industry to get them more involved or do you think they're already at the table they're already listening but it's just a slow machine yeah well it's it's, it's changing quite quickly um certainly the landscape is very very different um, like andrew said compared to even just a couple of years ago um and people are doing it for the right reason. I mean, obviously there's the communication stuff which people have their legal obligations to, but outside of that, the reason why all these companies are getting on board is because they want to. They don't want to be unnecessarily excluding players. They want their players to have a good time, which is really nice to see compared to certainly other industries I've worked in where it's more of like a compliance box ticking kind of exercise. Um, I think it comes down to the kind of people that are working in the games industry, that people genuinely are passionate about passionate about their players having the best possible experience. Um, but in terms of like incentives and stuff, there is a nice case study of that out of um, Australia, um, an organization called Film Victoria which is a um, government funding body for the creative industries in the state of Victoria, um, which is where most of Australia's game development is. And um, back in, ooh, I think 2011, 2012, um, they realized that they had accessibility requirements as part of the funding process for their like film and TV and, and stuff. Like if somebody pitched a film to them, um, they weren't allowed to get funding for their film unless they'd put subtitles in. Um, right. So they said, why don't we have the same thing for the games? 
and they did. So they implemented um, basically as part of the funding process um, a really simple question. It just said, here's a couple of example accessibility features. Um, tick which ones you're including. Um, if there's anything else you're doing as well, write it in this box. Um, here's another box. If you're not thinking about accessibility, tell us why not. And in all the years that's been running for, they haven't had one single developer write anything in a tell us why not box, obviously because they want to get their funding. Um, and why that's really, really important is because this is prototype funding. So it's helping to encourage that thing that I was talking about earlier about developers thinking about it early in the process when stuff is easy and cheap to do. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's good to have something like that. I think it's it's a bit like the accessibility consultancy, really. It's, it's people need information and, and need education. They don't automatically know it. And I think in a way you, you guys want to streamline it as much as possible as an industry, but talking to yourselves, let's talk about something else in new technologies, talk about the future. We've got VR, sort of various sort of mixed reality options. Uh, Andrew, what do you think of VR? Do you think VR could be adapted well? Do you think that could help? Uh, possibly. Uh, it really depends on how the technology develops and the industry transitions to new ways of playing games. Uh, in terms of VR, in our center, we use uh, adaptions that allow people to control um, movement with their like one leg, with their feet, or things like that. We are looking at including new technologies. There's uh, been a new release of something online that we're exploring with that will let someone who plays VR to be, if they're in a wheelchair, use the joystick of their electric wheelchair to steer their character in VR, which will be fantastic for wa walking simulators and things like that. Um, so that's something that we're really hoping to achieve. But we also work a lot with people that don't have a physical disability. And VR is a fantastic tool uh, to help people which have a sensory processing issue or a learning disability. And the reward and just experience that it, VR can offer is amazing. Yeah. Um, we have some people that come that they have always wanted to go on a roller coaster, for example. Terrible example. Uh, anyone that works in VR says that do not put someone on a roller coaster as their first experience in VR. Um, but yet we do because we, hey, we're not, we're not trying to sell VR. So, um, like, we can take someone that has uh, spinal issues. Yeah and legally and sensibly should never sit on a roller coaster in <laughs> yeah. their life yeah. but can experience one in vr and the screams are just as genuine yeah. in our center as they would yeah. be at a insert name of theme park here yeah. um, the potential for vr to en enable people to experience uh, other worlds it's definitely something that we have to pursue uh, I do personally have some concerns as to as VR, the technology progresses, we're now getting more immersive. We've now got access to controllers that can judge how much strength you're gripping the controller with and translate that into the game. Uh, one of the examples they give is in one game, uh, the gentleman's holding a spear and he passes it through his hands by adjusting how hard he's gripping the controller mm -hmm. and he can slide down a rope or things like that, which is great if you have good control over how hard you're gripping something. But that part of that game was completely inaccessible yeah. to so many people that we meet. And at the moment, v VR can be a great tool, um, but unless thought is put into the design process of these games, we're going to go down a route where 
that area of gaming will become progressively more inaccessible as the technology gets better. So, I mean, that's wonderful. I think just the freedom that it gives people, you know, to, to experience things they could never normally experience. I've, I've done the roller coaster myself, and I can tell you it's a rough ride. It's not for everybody. But, you know, I can imagine that for somebody who's been in a restrictive position, who's never been able to do that, it's, it's wonderful. And it's just the, the beginning. There's a lot of uh, technology going into eye tracking with VR now, serious amounts of, of money being invested into it because they're trying to work out uh, not only where you're looking, but where the light comes from in your pupil, mm. which it comes from sort of 1% of your pupil. So where's the actual eye? I wonder, in terms of accessibility, we've, you know, years ago, I, I remember seeing a, a Trackmania demo where you'd look up and down and left and right to steer the car. Are we getting to a point now where potentially uh, VR companies are, are developing technology that you guys can use? And would the, do you think they'd be willing to share it, that eye tracking tech with with companies like yourself and adapting it to make it more accessible because it's also in a way they might not want to share that the details of that tech and how would that work? Eye tracking within VR at the moment is very much in its infancy. I've not had any opportunity to get hands on with it myself. Mm. Um, I know it exists, but at the moment to get a insert to make a headset that has eye tracking built in is yeah. as much as the headset itself. In terms of eye tracking as a whole, though, we use it regularly in our center. Mm -hmm. uh, we play various racing games and other games through eye tracking where someone will just use their eyes to steer around the track. Yeah. And it's incredibly successful. It's also really easy to do now with modern technology. Um, a 30 pound piece of software will let you build your own profiles so you could theoretically map any game to be played mm -hmm. with just your eyes and Toby have released a eye tracking bar, bar the Toby 4C, right. um, and that is just under 200 euros. Right. And with that, you can set up more, almost any game to be played with eye gaze. The only caveat to that is anything could be played. Yep. It's about finding experiences that are enjoyable in that setup. Yeah. Well, it's good that the technology is improving. There is technology there. I think just on that VR, I think there's more positive than negative. I, I think that it, what you're saying there is it, it can give people incredible freedom, but we've just got to make sure that all games have that accessibility built in. I mean, you've pointed out a game that doesn't have it. Yeah. Uh, I think as, perhaps those developers need to be aware of it, but it's that's where you come with a challenge because we don't want to stem game design but you know we want to make games available for everybody but we still want to try new things and i i think sometimes they can try making a new game seeing how it works and then trying to adapt it i think that's the challenge because of course we want we want people with disabilities to be as free and involved with gaming as possible without everything being adapted and changed in that way and i, I think making bringing them apart rather than sort of separating two communities in that way uh, looking to the future I guess Ian now uh, what would we I guess to finish off today what would we like to see for yourself working with companies working with uh, trade bodies where are we going what would you like to see improved in the future um, well, the next step for me is there's there's so many companies now that have just kind of been starting to dip their toe in the water, um, have started to get feedback from gamers, are starting to involve more disabled gamers in the, directly in the design process. Um, it's a case of kind of consolidation now. 
them actually getting it as part of um, this, the day-to-day process of making games, looking at the process and the workflow and all that kind of stuff, um, which isn't the most exciting side of things, but that's what you need um, to, to move beyond kind of like these initial kind of like experiments and stuff, you know. Um, so that's the next step for me really is is that that doubling down and consolidation of people's efforts. Um, and like I said, we're going to start seeing the fruits of that um, this year, really. Um, so that's going to be nice. Um, the next thing um, would be um, for hardware, like you already mentioned, the next generation of consoles. Because um, the current generation of consoles, they have a, a ton of really nice accessibility stuff. And um, those the, the first seeds of that were actually that same um, legislation that I mentioned. Um, so that was when accessibility features started appearing on consoles, was in 2015 um, when they had their deadline for their communication accessibility. And once that was in, they then ran with it and did loads of other cool stuff outside of communications. Um, but it does mean that accessibility was thought about once the hardware was already out and once the consoles were already a significant chunk through their life cycle. Um, at that time, that time those companies started thinking about accessibility properly was in the very early days of this new generation coming out. Um, so this will be the first time that we we have actually ever seen a console generation being launched where accessibility was thought about from the early stages. So there's potential for some really, really cool stuff to come from that as well. Excellent. Andrew, your thoughts as well. Anything you're sort of really looking forward to that you think that's going to take another step forward for accessibility? Uh, you're liking VR, so is there anything in there, perhaps, or anything around new technology that you think you're? What's most exciting? You're I I know there's a lot of groups uh, at the moment working on projects to try and take uh, wheelchair users, wheelchairs, mm. and bring that into the console. Um, I'm just constantly amazed by all the different projects that are going on. Uh, we were recently, last year, I think, approached by a student. Uh, Manchester University. I'm not sure if they went through with their plan, but one of their projects that they were proposing was they were considering trying to make a prosthetic arm with a game controller built into it. Right. It's it's just we're living in a crazy yeah. world where yeah. people are embracing this and really trying to see how far they can run with it. I'm not sure the practicality of having a game controller f- built into your yeah. arm would be. So like I'm Nintendo sh- Power Glove. Yeah, I don't don't know what it would look like, but I'm sure it would answer some questions. And if it were to exist, then, okay, what could we then learn from that and go on next and things like that? It sounds like something out of cyberpunk. I don't know. I think cyberpunk would be the perfect game to to do something. Yeah, that that would be be an interesting tie-in. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. give you advantages in the game. I I don't think we want to encourage people (laughs) to opt into those kind of things. (laughs) Well, listen, Ian, Andrew, it's been good to talk about the many aspects today. I, I hope it's been informative to those with disabilities who have been watching today and looking for opportunities for them to get involved in gaming and see hear about some of the controllers and the progress that's been made there and for game developers as well that are looking to make their games more accessible and perhaps discuss with charities like yourselves ways of of helping that and aiding that from accessibility to green gaming and the future of esports we've covered a range of topics on our game changers podcast if there's a topic you'd like to see us talk about next time tweet us at logitech g uk And for our first 500 listeners, you can receive 10% off products at logitechg.com with the code PODCAST10. This exclusive deal is available till the 31st of May and includes a maximum of three purchases. And remember, please subscribe on your app of choice and leave a review. Don't forget to follow Logitech on Twitter at LogitechGUK, Facebook, logitechg.uk, 
and Instagram at Logitech G. There you'll be able to learn more about the new Lightspeed wireless range that's now available. I'm Alan Boyston. Thank you for listening. Thank you.